Welcome to Human Rights Education Now, a podcast series from Human Rights Educators USA. I'm your host, Bill Fernikes, a member of the National Steering Committee of HRE USA, a collaborative network to learn, teach, organize, advocate, and innovate for human rights education in the United States. This podcast aims to raise awareness about human rights education and invites listeners to engage with the worldwide movement to make human rights education a core focus of educational programs from preschool through higher education and in both non-formal and informal community educational settings. Today's program is a conversation with Sandra Sirota, Assistant Professor in Residence, Human Rights Institute, and Director of the Human Rights Close to Home Dodd Human Rights Impact Project at the University of Connecticut Stores. In this episode, Sandra discusses the origins of her interest in human rights and human rights education, how her work in anthropology and with non-governmental organizations has influenced her human rights education work, the significance of instructing pre-service and veteran educators about human rights education, and the program goals and activities of the Human Rights Close to Home Project, a unique K-12 university partnership. Well, it is truly a pleasure to be discussing human rights education today and many other topics with Sandra Sirota of the University of Connecticut. How are you today, Sandra? I'm great. It's great to be here. Thanks. Tell us how you first became interested in human rights issues and subsequently in human rights education. Sure. So I think... During my childhood, I had some experiences that made me think about human rights issues, even though I didn't know um, what human rights were at the time. And I think back to when I was 12 or 13 years old, and I was friends with some uh, peers who lived in the town next door. And so I asked my parents if I could go to their school instead of the one I was attending. And they said, you know, we were in public school. I had to attend the school in the town where I lived. And I said, oh, well, I wish we had moved to that town so I could go with them. And they said, well, we chose to live here because they have a better quality of education. And I was trying to wrap my head around that to understand why different schools would have different qualities of education. And I thought about that a lot as I grew up. And I eventually thought I wanted to get into some type of education reform um, or go into teaching. But I think as I continued on, graduated college and got into some different careers, I recognized human rights injustices you know, in all different places, not just in the education system. And so from that, I eventually went on to get my degree in human rights. And then um, after I got my master's degree in human rights, I decided to come. I was in uh, Denver. I came back to New York where I had spent a lot of my life. 
And I wanted to see how I could make a difference advocating for human rights. So I started volunteering with Human Rights Watch, with Amnesty International, learning about the different organizations and how they worked. And I ended up helping with a project with Human Rights Watch where we went into public schools and we taught um, high school students about how children were being used as soldiers in different countries. And the children and teachers, of course, were very upset by this, but they wanted us to come back and tell them what they could do, how they could do more, and how they could advocate for change. And so we went back to Human Rights Watch. Um, Joe Becker, the head of the Children's Rights Division, was um, training us. And um, we said, you know, we'd like to go back. And um, she was very supportive. But there was so much um, demand from the schools to want to know about this type of different human rights issues. Um, and it wasn't something that Human Rights Watch really did. And so we asked if we could kind of take this model and and go off on our own. And a group of us women with um, Joe Becker's blessing decided to create this organization called Advocacy Lab, which went from just going in to teach about um, the rights of children to really expanding to be a year-long program where we were teaching about human rights in the first semester and then working with the students to advocate for an issue um, that they they cared about and they would do a human rights campaign on that issue. So what I thought, I thought I was going to get involved in human rights advocacy. I ended up getting involved in human rights education and I've been here ever since. So you did your undergraduate work in anthropology, correct? I did. And then followed up with the uh, master's degree in uh, international human rights at the University of Denver. Yeah. I'm interested to know whether you thought human rights was something you would actually be able to study in those degrees, particularly in your undergraduate degree, or did you first encounter it in the master's program? Yeah. So I actually did not um, think I would be able to, I didn't know much about the human rights field when I went to my undergraduate program. Um, I do believe that's when I first got involved with Amnesty International a little bit, but not even, um, um, I didn't even have a major role there, but I was part of this program called Connections. And this program during my undergrad, you know, I still think about it to this day. Basically what we did was, um, it was open to the community. So it wasn't just college students. It, it was a program that included um, students as young as, I believe it was high school students, all the way up to like people in their 80s. And we all got together once a week in this big room. There was probably a hundred of us, um, a very diverse group. And each week we would talk about a different ism, they would call it like um, sexism, racism, you know. Um, and as you came into the room, you would identify based on the ism as an oppressed person or an oppressor. And you would first meet in a small group with that you met with every week and talk about the issue. And then you'd go into separate rooms. The oppressed people would be in one room, the oppressors would be in another room. And you talk about your experience from that uh, position. And then you would come back together and we would all be in a room together. And the people who were identify and it was self-identified so you would identify as oppressed 
you would talk about their experiences and the people who were oppressors would just listen. And it was meant to be like um, a gift that you had the opportunity to understand and, and learn. And at the end, everyone came together and a couple people from each of the sides would come in the middle and kind of talk out the experience um, to kind of try to come to some understanding and closure. And I just thought it was such a powerful experience to walk into that room and think about, you know, my identity and which side I was on each week. And um, it really just stuck with me, everything I learned and everything I got to share. But I will say, you know, that was a while ago now. I'm not sure separating by identities each week is the best approach. I've been thinking about that, but the model was really um, important. And it was human rights education, even though it wasn't called that, you know. And so I didn't really get exposed to formal human rights education until my master's program. So at this point in time, you are working at the University of Connecticut as a professor, mm -hmm. managing a program called Human Rights Close to Home. What was the origin of that program? And can you discuss the goals and some of the key activities? Sure. So um, Human Rights Close to Home is a program of Dodd Impact, which is in the Dodd Center for Human Rights here at UConn. And it wouldn't be possible without the um, support and funding of the Redstone Family Foundation. I have to say that um, they've been amazing. And so the program involves teachers who are teaching all different subjects, K through 12 and high school students. And we launched this summer with the Summer Institute where we had 25 teachers and 15 high school students come together and they were on campus here for a week where the teachers and students learned together about human rights and taking action. And at the end of the week, the students came up with a plan to just starting a plan um, to engage in civic action in their communities on a local issue that they care about. And we're supporting them throughout the school year as they plan and begin to implement those plans. The teachers, um, by the end of the week, um, started thinking about human rights lessons that they're going to integrate into their curriculum. And then they stayed on for one more week and continued to gain some content knowledge, but really took the time to learn, to think about their curriculum and how they're going to integrate everything they've learned into the classroom for the coming year. So um, the goal for the teachers is to integrate human rights into their classes. And then the teachers come back for a second year to kind of refine those lessons. And we're going to work together to create um, open source, probably a website where um, the broader education community can access these activities and lessons and use them as well. So how do, you, how do the people who are in the program move it forward in settings, for, for example, that might be less than optimal? Mm. Are there you know, challenges or obstacles? Yeah, so the biggest challenge that we hear from the teachers right now is having time. And so particularly because some of the teachers are teaching subjects where you might not typically find human rights content, like in a math class or a chorus or um, kindergarten. Right. So 
Um, I will say that uh, time being the biggest issue, um, I'm glad that we had that second week for them where they could really like start to plan um, and have their plan, at least the beginning of their plan ready for the school year. And we did meet with the teachers for the first, um, our first meeting of the school year just um, a few days ago. And I'm happy to say most of them have been able to start implementing human rights education already. So that's the exciting part. Um, we haven't come up with any resistance yet, but I'm sure that can happen. <laughs> but um, so far, we're finding that um, the teachers are able to implement, and um, it's really just a matter of ensuring that they have the time to plan and think about how to integrate and then have the support if if they do get stuck. Do you see their work as fitting into any one of the three models that uh, Felissa Tibbetts has talked about, you know, socialization model, professional mm -hmm. accountability, or transformative? Do the things you've been hearing them talk about sort of move in a particular direction? I think um, it's more of a combination rather than one strict model. So I know with the accountability model um, that Felicia Tibbetts talks about, we think about professionals learning how to support human rights for um, you know whoever they're working with, whether they're a lawyer, a teacher, you know, a social worker. Um, so I would certainly say the fact that teachers are gaining human rights knowledge. Um, it's not just to um, implement, but they're gaining it so that they can also support human rights of their students. Um, our hope is that uh, this leads to transformation. And I think uh, the goal of having human rights implemented throughout the year, so it's not just a one-day um, lesson, and the fact that we also emphasize taking action um, hopefully that can lead to the opportunity for learners to really think critically about human rights, about their own lives, and how they can take action, not just, you know, in class with their teacher support, but like bring it into other parts of their lives. And for the students, for sure, because these are young people, some of them have taken action for human rights, but for some people, this is really brand new to them. And so they're getting support from UConn students who are mentors and mentoring them throughout the year so that they can really develop a civic action project and carry it out. So they're, they're going to really have the opportunity to go deep into this work. Well, that sounds great. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit so you can yeah. talk a little bit about uh, your work that you did in South Africa and for some NGOs. I'm very interested to know <clears throat> how that work might have influenced your current thoughts about human rights education. Yeah, I think the fact that, you know, before I got into academia and started working at UConn, um, where I do some practice, but I also do a lot of research and teaching, I, I was able to work for different NGOs where we advocated for human rights, um, like with Amnesty International, um, and then where I got to teach human rights um, with the Advocacy Lab in New York. And then also, like you mentioned, I went to South Africa for a summer and I interviewed 
teachers, students, um, NGOs, uh, government, and um, school administration to understand is human rights education happening in South Africa? Where is it happening? How is it happening? And I often, I did find some evidence of human rights education in schools, not as much as I had I had hoped. I thought it was a little bit more robust there, but um, and that might be changing now because I know they have some new curriculum coming out. Um, but I also found NGOs in South Africa that were doing human rights and social justice work with young people that was very similar to some of the organizations I knew of in New York, and even when I came to Connecticut, an organization here. So I always think about the different ways that human rights education and human rights work with young people is happening in these different settings. And that really influences my work and also how I do research. Like um, I just finished a project with an organization here in Connecticut called Hearing Youth Voices. And it's this amazing organization that actually was started because government um, had come into New London. I can't remember exactly who it was, but they came in to do a study on education, but they didn't speak to any of the young people. And so a group of young people got together and said, we're going to do our own study. So they did research and then they looked at what students felt they needed. And then they started this organization, Hearing Youth Voices, out of that. And so I worked with two of the young people who were um, activists with the organization, but also students at the University of Connecticut. And so we did research together to understand how this group of young people who are actually, it's a black and brown youth-led um, social justice organization that works to end systemic racism in education. And so with these two young people, um, we were able to really do some in-depth research on how does this influence young people? How does this influence systemic racism in New London and in the education system? And how do the young people, you know, feel about being part of this, this movement, this organization? Does it, you know, have any effect on them? And I think like doing research with the young people was something that I felt really good about doing because um, I've had so much experience with young people in NGOs and in schools before I came here. Well, that sounds exciting. I presume it's going to be published at some point? Yes, we're working on it. Well, that's great. Yeah. Now, in your one of your roles at UConn, um, you are educating pre-service teachers, both those are entering the profession as well as veteran teachers. So what are some of the challenges you face in that and how have you sought to overcome them? Well, um, I think the challenge is that human rights education is not required, right? By um, there's There are curriculum standards that are related to human rights, but it's not certainly not in every subject. It's mostly in social studies when it is required. Um, so I would really like for every pre-service teacher to be able to um, gain a human rights education and use the human rights framework when they teach. Um, but because the demands on teachers and pre-service teachers 
um, are really uh, rigorous and time consuming, it's hard to find the time to bring human rights education in. So I'm lucky to teach a course here at UConn. Um, I'm teaching it right now on human rights and social justice in education. And we have pre-service teachers, we have teachers, we have you know doctoral students, um, we have human rights majors, so it's it's a mix. And then with human rights close to home, being able to work with veteran teachers. And then we also have a program called um, Early College Experience here where high school teachers can be certified to teach human rights in their high schools and the students get college credit. So we have a lot of different ways to be able to um, ensure that teachers receive human rights education so they can go back and, and teach in their schools. And I was thinking about it, I think there must be almost 50 high schools well, actually, 50 K through 12 schools in Connecticut that now have human rights education, which is great, but you have to get creative. <laughs> and um, not every state, you know, has um, has those same opportunities. Have you encountered resistance from school administrators who view human rights as uh, marginal, for example? Um, so far, the only resistance we've had, and I don't even know if it's resistance, but it hasn't been prioritized, right, for some schools, like, um, you know, if we're reaching out and trying to recruit teachers to the program, not every school is really e eager and enthusiastic to join, but we haven't, we've had a lot more positive experiences and um, finding that people are really excited about the program um, rather than um, negative right now. Well, that's great. In fact, we have negative, yeah. So you've talked about the idea of engaging students in civic action. Mm -hmm. And if you were to talk about that as something where you see an ideal, for example, is it something that you believe an individual student should engage in a group or should there be multi-generational activities? How do you envision this happening? That's a great question. Well, I will say, um, because this is the first year we're running Human Rights Close to Home, um, we, we've been experimenting to see what works well. And one of our experiments was to, to have teachers and students in the same, um, basically learning together for the week, like they were together probably 90% of the time. And I wasn't sure how that was going to work. Like, how do you teach content to both high school students and teachers at the same time? And it actually was really powerful. It was um, something that the students and the teachers really talked about a lot. The students were excited to be able to call teachers by their first name, but also to <laughs> give them advice that they took and appreciated. And teachers, even in um, teachers who were teaching the earlier grades were saying, you know, they hadn't worked with high school students in, in a long time because maybe they're teaching third grade or something like that. And it was just such a wonderful experience to get their perspectives. And so I've this was one of my richest experience with intergenerational learning. And so I really think that that's um, a strength of doing civic action work. And so for the students, um, I do think there's an something important um, 
about being in solidarity with other students. That could be working in collaboration or it could be working on your own, but having a support system of other students. So we do have our students working in groups. Um, some of them are doing individual projects. Some of them are doing a project in pairs, but they meet with a mentor in groups so they can share every two weeks about their progress and what they're doing. So I think it's, this can be really difficult work. And so to do it alone um, without support of your peers can be hard. So I definitely think working together and the intergenerational component, I think is very powerful. Thanks for listening to Human Rights Education Now. Our next episode concludes our conversation with Sandra Sirota, a leading scholar in the field of human rights education. You can find additional information about this podcast series at www.hreusa.org. Each episode is available on the HRE USA podcast page, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Player FM, Pocket Cast, and Deezer. It will soon be available on YouTube and SoundCloud. You can also download each episode as an MP3 file. If you have questions or comments about this podcast, send them to Christy at HREUSA.org. That's K-R-I-S-T-I at H-R-E-U-S-A.org. Our podcast team includes host and producer Bill Fernickes, executive producer Christy Verdelius palmer editor Elizabeth Schwab, sound designer and project manager Sabrina Sanchez, communications and public outreach coordinator Jessica Terbrugan, and production coordinator Jasmine Chizugoto. The Human Rights Education Now logo was designed by Kim Berry. Human Rights Education Now is a production of Human Rights Educators USA, a project of the Center for Transformative Action in Ithaca, New York.